Hello, and welcome to Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. I'm Anne-Marie Slaughter, the CEO of New America. This fall, we released a digital magazine about the topic of resilience. In it, we feature the wisdom and unique perspectives of changemakers, thought leaders, and creatives on how we, as a nation, can bolster the resilience of our society. Please visit the magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to learn more. Ertherin Cousin has been called one of the world's most powerful women, and rightly so. For five years, she was executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, the largest humanitarian agency in the world solving hunger. During her tenure, Ertherin oversaw a 15,000-person global staff who provided food to people in need in more than 70 countries. Her mission today remains the same, solving hunger in her lifetime. Ertherin is now a lecturer at Stanford University and a distinguished fellow at the Center on Food Security and the Environment, as well as the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. We spoke about resilience as it pertains to the intersection between hunger and society, and what she thinks governments around the world, the private sector, and everyday citizens need to do to combat the effects of climate change on the world's most vulnerable communities. It's an inspiring conversation that will leave you wanting to step up and do your part to help make the world better. Now let's get to my conversation with Ertherin Cousin. You know, I have I've read about your career in public service and I know that it was it was really shaped uh, by your family and you grew up in Chicago, which uh, is a city I love and and taught in for a number of years. And you you have written that your parents really got you engaged in public service very early on. Talk a little bit about that, about uh, your how that happened and how how that then led to what has been such a, a distinguished career in public service. Well, thank you very much um, for that question. And the family and my family in particular, if you're if you're lucky enough, shape who you become um, as an adult uh, and yep. and and shape your passions. Um, my my dad, I like to say, was a community organizer before Barack Obama made it popular. And... <laughs> And he was one of these people who, if you, you you need to set the stage, I was born in 1957. Both of my parents came up during the migration, my dad from right. Louisiana, my mom from Georgia, uh, wow. to find the different sets of opportunities than what were available in the South in the 1950s. And met each other, both living with old aunts, with and <laughs> and, and, and and went on to have this family. My, my father and mother both believed that we were ripe as a nation for for change for for what was then the Negro, and they were very much. My dad was very much involved in progressive democratic politics. Uh, Mayor Daley was in charge right. in the city, and and uh, my father was involved in uh, any number of campaigns to try and elect progressive candidates. And we lost a lot of elections. Let 
let me tell you. And we were <laughs> the kids who passed out the literature for those elections. And right. both my grandmother and my dad owned restaurants. And they owned neighborhood joints um, where they they gave away as much food as they sold because people knew it was a place that they could go and get a meal if they didn't have enough money, which means which tells you right away. My dad and and my grandmother were terrible business people. But it does help explain your your lifelong career in food. You were, clearly your family was already providing food security to the people around you. Very much so. And if if it wasn't in their restaurant, it was at our dinner table. There was always Congressman Danny Davis. I grew up with him sitting at my dinner table with my dad fighting about electing uh, different candidates and making change on the city's west side and particularly in the line what was then and what is still the Lawndale community. But those those conversations that I uh, had the opportunity to witness and the work that they performed really shaped my belief that people could make a difference, regardless of what the systems were that created the challenges that people faced, that working together, people could make a difference. That's wonderful. And it, it was a potential particularly critical time in our nation's history in terms of having, you know, we fought World War II on the side of the good and the right, uh, certainly by our own narrative. And But a lot of people, and particularly a lot of, of soldiers of color, came home and said, you know, uh, this doesn't look like what I've been fighting for. And as you said, the, the 1950s were really, they incubated that, that change uh, in the civil rights movement in the, in the 60s. But what's interesting is I, as I listen to you describe how you came up and thinking about resilience and and the ways we can conceive of resilience, you're describing a very close-knit community, lots of of tightly woven relationships, and people knew each other. Did you have a sense of being, I mean, you were in Chicago, but Lawndale's, did you have a sense of being part of a smaller community? Well, you have to remember, this was during a period of time when the racial segregation patterns in Chicago's housing community, no matter who you were, doctors, lawyers, the baker, the the restaurant owner, the tavern owner, everybody lived in the same neighborhoods. The the neighborhoods weren't opened up so that income defined where you lived, race defined where you lived. And so community was very much about everyone working together to ensure that the communities were stable and safe. And we, we would always laugh because if you did something wrong, the neighbors would discipline you and then tell your parents that they had disciplined you before <laughs> they even got out of the car. So, you know, you can't see, you don't see that kind of solidarity in, in community, let alone in parenting today. Uh, but back then, that was how we lived. Everywhere we, the neighbors felt as much responsibility for the, the children of the community as they did for their own children. And that gave you a sense of well-being. 
um, that uh, I think many young people miss today with all the violence on our streets, particularly here in Chicago. Yeah, and as you say, Chicago, of course, is still deeply segregated, as so many cities are, but but it is less segregated by class. In other words, you do not have the same doctors, lawyers, bankers, all the way down, up and down the, the income chain necessarily living in the same places. Uh, so it's an, an interesting and, and quite wonderful description of, of people being aware of each other and forging uh, those relationships. Take us from, from there, and I love the idea of, of, of <laughs> your uh, father and the restaurateurs in your family uh, giving away uh, food, but t- take us from there to, so you believed that people could change. You clearly had a sense of politics. Uh, how, do, how does that then take you uh, to a career in food security? Well, let me just add two things that I think are really important and what shaped my beliefs. And that is, I was part of the Archdiocese busing program as well. And so I was taken out of the inner city of Chicago and, and on, a, on a yellow school bus to LaGrange Park, uh, where I was one of two African-Americans then in my eighth grade graduating class, because there was a belief that the, at that time, you will remember uh, and recall that that we believe that if we could provide a different set of opportunities for the best and the brightest, that we could provide a new new sets of uh, possibilities for African-American children. And so I went, the, that gave me the ability to know people who weren't part of my community and understand that despite the systematic challenges that we had in Chicago, that there were good people who didn't look like me. And that was really important to shaping my beliefs about how all people working together can make change and not just people who share your race, your background, your culture. That's that's very interesting. And also means, did you then have white friends when you were in the school that you were bused to? I did have white friends in the school that I was bused to. not everybody did. <laughs> well, you know, if, if you're, if, if it, it was me and Russell Morris in my <laughs> class. And so if I didn't have white friends, I was going to be a very lonely young woman. <laughs> so you must have developed the personal resilience, though, at an early age. That must have been scary. It, it was very scary. But, you know, what resilience is all about, having the ability to cope with shocks and crises and differences and, and continue to move forward. And so, again, uh, ha- knowing that I had this community and this family that was supporting my my uh, experiences in the suburb, even though they weren't there, I could always go home if it didn't work out. It gave me the support that I needed the safety net that was required to take a chance. Yeah, that's. I think that's a very, very important piece of, as you say, adapting to change, moving forward. That you you know you've got an anchor, a foundation, a, you know, a place to retreat to <laughs> uh, that that then gives you what it takes to to keep keep putting yourself out there. Because I can only imagine what it felt like to be you know the first to be the first African American students in a white school or in a completely different neighborhood. You know, when you're when you're kids, when you're adult, that that's scary 
stuff. You know, I I will I will tell you a really brief story here that I when I about a year and a half ago, the Hyatt Hotels honored me during uh, Women's History Month. And uh, one of the reasons they chose to honor me, yes, be I, my work with WFP, my work as U.S. ambassador, but also because of my resilience and my continued belief in people, despite what they learned that I didn't wasn't even aware that this was was part of their decision making. What happened was the the vice president of diversity at Hyatt led a, a workshop with his employees and he asked them to tell a story about an, an event where they were uncomfortable about race. And one of the women stood up and told a story about when she was in seventh grade and she brought home the only African-American student in her school for a sleepover. And her father came home and said, I won't have a nigger sleeping under my roof. Wow. And her mother didn't push back. And as she told this story and she named the person, it was me. You're kidding. And so the person who was leading the seminar is a personal friend of mine, and he just couldn't believe it that these worlds, his personal world and his work environment were intersecting in this way, in a way that gave him the ability to use me as an example of overcoming that kind of challenge to continue to believe in people and move forward. And then he brought us together on the stage with with our mothers for this Women's History Month event. That is marvelous. But you're underlining a couple of things that I really do think are important, aside from just personal courage and and persistence and, again, uh, the support of a strong family or a strong community. But, But you did also then, as you say, encounter difference very early uh, and understanding uh, th- that, you, A, you could navigate difference yourself, but also discovering that, that even am- among what seems different, as you say, they're good people in, in different uh, in different settings uh, and in a way that, that allowed, that gave you confidence. So move forward, though, and, and let's talk about, you know, you really have had a career spanning many different organizations, but the, th- you know, the overarching theme has been in combating hunger, combating, we call it food insecurity, because uh, sometimes you have food and sometimes you don't. But when I think about, you know, what can sap people, and I, you, you think about this if you're hungry and you're irritated and you can't focus, and you think about that for children in school, but then you think about, you know, this is one of the most fun, it is the most fundamental human need, right? With the, and so, how, first place, why did you choose hunger? Uh, and, and, then we'll talk about the actual work that, that you've done and the resilience you've seen in others. Sure. I, I, I didn't choose hunger. Hunger chose me. Uh, <laughs> very, and I, 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 I don't mean to be too cliche-ish, and I apologize, but I mean that very sincerely. Most of, of my career, as I'm a lawyer by training. I'd studied international law with Dean Rusk down at the University of Georgia and came back and worked in politics 
and government and working on issues related to equity and equality and, and changing regulations to provide for affirmative action opportunity for businesses. And while continuously working to elect candidates that believed in those issues of equity and opportunity. And when I, I, I we, we finally won a presidential election with the election of Bill Clinton, and I went to Washington as first the deputy chief of staff of the DNC and then as the White House liaison at the State Department. And while serving as White House liaison at the State Department, I had the opportunity to work on the Women's Conference in China with then First Lady Hillary Clinton. And this was before the China as we know it today. And, and Waru outside of Beijing, where the conference was held, was a very rural area where you saw the poor uh, and the malnourished in, in China. And so I had was, was building all of these experiences, both of, of the challenges of hunger at home and food insecurity at home and then seeing it in China and having the opportunities to travel to South Africa. And so I, my my experience of those without access to food was beginning to shape a desire in me to be, make a difference in this area. After Clinton's second, second election, I took a position with uh, the retail food chain um, here in Chicago, Jewel Food Stores, as their vice president of government and community affairs, with a goal of working with with them to build stores in uh, underserved area, what we call food deserts. How could we serve these communities profitably and equitably to ensure that the populations living in these neighborhoods had access to affordable, nutritious food? And in uh, performing that work, what the Clinton administration, while performing that work, the Clinton administration also then appointed me to the Board for International Food and agricultural development. And I must tell you, that was getting a graduate degree in agricultural development. I sat on the on a panel with some of the leading experts in food security and agricultural development. Um, I I listened more than I talked and learned a lot. But isn't it isn't it true that often when we look at problems of food insecurity, one of the problems is the there's the agricultural community. Uh, and then there's the nutrition community, and the, and of course there's also the the commercial community. But the the nutrition folks and the agriculture folks often don't intersect. Well, we're they're better at it today than they were back then. The reality of it is, you can follow development activity based upon sources of funding. The nutrition community is funded out of health budgets. The agricultural community is funded out of development or agriculture budgets. And as such, the programs that they would develop, the projects that they would put forward were siloed because they were donor driven. And it wasn't until the 90s when evidence began to to come forth that demonstrated the relationship between food as medicine and the, that children were not growing to their full potential when they were missing those, that first thousand days 
phase of adequate nutrition, that women were impacted by lack of access to micronutrients, that you began to see those those funders then recognizing the value of integrating the programming activities. And when the funding integrates the programming <laughs> activity, the, the development actors will then integrate the programming activity. <laughs> yes, I have plenty of experience with that as, as the head of a nonprofit organization. So let's let's think about the, the different contexts in which you work. So in some cases, you have chronic food insecurity, right? That the land really can't support the number of people. Obviously, climate change is making that worse or just basic poverty often combined with the inability to, to grow the kind of food that would, would support you. That's chronic hunger. But then you also have, of course, situations like famines and floods, uh, you know, a terrible heat wave, a flood where suddenly a, a community that had been feeding itself can no longer. Do you have to think about those completely differently? Are there some common themes across them? Well, there are some common themes, but you do respond differently. And the populations that you respond to are quite different. In chronic uh, severe food insecurity, you are often, unfortunately, dealing with those who live, who are vulnerable people living in, in vulnerable places. They're the landless. There are those who are subsistence farmers. There are those who here in the United States don't have access to enough income to support regular access to affordable, nutritious food. And so how you address those are directly related to building more resilience in those populations from an agricultural standpoint. What can I do to increase the productivity to, to support the partners who will help increase the productivity of the agriculture that is under cultivation that will support the development of markets that will ensure increased incomes for those households so that they can support food not only during the the harvest but during the lean season in urban areas what can we do to increase access to nutritious food um, that uh, either by supplementing the incomes of those individuals or working to reduce the cost of the food that that they access. And so in those chronic situations, you are looking, you are working to develop longer term responses to supporting the needs of the population that will, that will, with a goal of giving people the ability to ultimately feed themselves. In quick onset emergencies, acute situations, you are just trying to get food out to people as fast as possible so that they can stabilize and you can address the challenge that created that quick onset emergency. Right now, that's what's happening in the Bahamas. Lots of people moving very fast to move food to people who have lost everything. And then over time, you will evaluate the different populations, their different needs, and work to address those needs, not with your tools, not, not just with your tools, but more aligned with what the population actually needs to recover. Hmm. 
Tell us about some of the the bright spots uh, when working with the World World Food Program. I mean, you, you've seen many of the the toughest food situations in the world in places like Yemen or Syria or Somalia, uh, but there were bright spots too. So tell tell us where you, there are examples you've seen of building a stronger, more resilient food ecosystem. Sure, I, I'm so proud of the teams that I've had the opportunity. To work with throughout my career that there are any number of examples of bright spots. Let's start with um, Guatemala, where uh, working with what was the Feed the Future program in the U.S. government, when I was serving as a master, we were able to not just increase the quantity and quality of yields, but work with smallholder farmers to support the development of export markets for those yields that increase the incomes of the household, giving them the capacity to not only feed their children, have uh, money for the children to attend uh, school. And as I asked one woman, I will never forget this. I was standing with a woman in her field in, a, in, in her three-quarter acre plot. And she, I asked her, I said, what difference does this, this work make in your life? And she said, that's my husband. She said, he would always need to go to the United States for us to have enough money to eat when when uh, the, the when during the lean season but because we're able to earn money and save a bit we can support our family all year long working together and he doesn't need to go to the United States when we talk about migration and populations moving for opportunity po- the people that i met would much rather stay at home if they have the economic opportunity to feed their family, pay their bills from their own labors at home. And that's what we were providing. And it was exciting. We not only fed their families, we kept their family together. And you were you were coming into a community and offering new tools or supporting people who already knew what to do in the community but just didn't have the wherewithal? We were support, providing new tools. And yeah. most importantly, we were providing providing market access to a commercial market that it's you you if you work with farmers to increase the quality and quantity of their yields but you don't provide access to a reliable market that will pay them a fair price for those yields you won't sustainably change their uh, economic situation or their food security situation well that's interesting because that also says look just just subsistence farming, right? Just growing enough food to keep your, yourself alive won't do it. It's got to be farming that then generates income that then allows people to build their personal resilience, right? To send send kids to school, to have enough to weather a, a small crisis. Uh, that the the money piece is is a, as as important as the actual food piece, without a doubt. A- interesting. Uh, the and and are there places that where you you could call out for particular resilience in the face of of either uh, you know like a, a famine like event or a, a natural disaster where you could actually see that they that they had built resilience? I I, I I think Ethiopia is a great example of this. This is a country that you will recall during the 1980s led to the Feed the World movement oh, and yeah. and yeah. the songs and, you know, we are the world. Right. Uh, we, uh, be, 
because when famine hit, the they completely relied upon the international community without the support of the international community. More than the hundreds of thousands who who starved would have perished. Right. When in in uh, 2016, when because of El Nino, the the rains didn't come. The systems that the Ethiopian government had developed and was able to launch in response to the drought supported their ability to provide the assistance that was necessary to their own population. And they then, because they had worked to create systems for safety nets as well as to create systems that supported farmers' ability to cultivate because they were able to give the many of the farmers more access to drought tolerant and drought resistant seeds. And so the level of impact was nothing, was limited, was much more limited compared to what their impact would have been five years, 10 years, 15 years before. Yes, hmm. they still needed assistance from the international community, but the largest contributor to the response was the Ethiopian government, not the international community. So taking taking the most from from the the, the initial response. Uh, and it's a, it's a country with a, a long, proud, strong history as as well. I want to talk about food and conflict uh, because often when we see famines or chronic food insecurity, it is often connected to the places uh, where we have chronic conflict. Again, thinking about Yemen or well, Ethiopia before Somalia for sure, Syria. How do you think about working uh, on food issues in in cases of conflict? Is that one where you you think you know this is a like a natural disaster, and we just we obviously have to get food to people? But how do you build capacity to feed themselves uh, when they're adjacent to real danger of violence and fleeing and and the dangers of conflict? Right. This is one of those areas where there is a a. Let me take a step back. Uh, and simply say that the response to hunger during conflict is much closer to, much more akin to a response to a quick onset emergency. These are individuals who are dealing with shocks, and I would argue they're dealing with shocks that don't end. When you are in a situation of um, a, a war zone, on uh, Yemen, I slept in a bed and watched the flare, the t- uh, the tail of a missile as it hit the ground. Uh, and I couldn't imagine a mother watching that every night and then going to and, and then uh, responding to an expectation that she will go to the fields and, and work and try and uh, and cultivate crops as opposed to protecting her children. And the first priority for families in these situations is safety. And that does not leave them with the ability to perform 
vocational activity, money-making activities. There is a desire on the part of many or of some funders to suggest that we should simultaneously work to build resilience in these populations through support for development activities. The resilience that we can build is much more related to ensuring that we can get access to children for education so that we have schools uh, in these long protracted crises that uh, provide an opportunity for children to continue to grow and develop despite the situations that they're living under. The reality is that farming, livestock maintenance, the, the, the activities of, of many of the poor in, in places like South Sudan and Yemen are not realistic for the a conflict affected population. And so we need to balance between our intellectual desire for resilience building and the reality that people living with the threat uh, of attack um, are facing on a real time basis. That's interesting because we we know that human beings are designed to take stress, whether it was being chased by a wild animal or whatever dangers we face. But our cortisol levels go up, our adrenaline levels go up, uh, and then but then they're supposed to come back down. Uh, and that if you can do that, you can build the capacity to withstand shocks. But as you point out, in conflict where you're constantly afraid for your security, and that can also be in cities with tremendous gun violence, you never actually have a chance to settle back to normal so that your cortisol levels are, are always elevated and it it is a, a long-term trauma. So it's, in, it's interesting the, to hear you say that effectively you have to treat it like an onset emergency, except, yes, children uh, the, and people people where you you can possibly give them the ability to have a different future. Uh, but that's that's quite consistent with what I know of just generally dealing with people who are, are being repeatedly traumatized. I want to move us back to the United States because I do think often when people hear about hunger, food insecurity, they think about countries around the world. They think about the Middle East. They think about Africa. They might think about Central America. But of course, many, many American families go to bed hungry and many kids come to school hungry. So what is it uh, that allows us in such a wealthy society in the United States to have hunger in our midst? Well, I would say, and I, 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 if, you, if you allow me in, to expand it to hunger and malnutrition, yes. because we have a growing challenge of overweight and obesity that are the same families that are food insecure in, in many communities. And why does that happen? It happens because the, the safety nets that, that are in place in our country are inadequate to support the nutritious food needs of an individual or in a family for an entire month. And so if you are dependent upon a minimum wage job or a, the social benefit system in the, in the U.S., your ability to meet your 
your household needs and demands and to feed your your yourself and your children healthy foods is in complete conflict on an everyday basis. You talk to mothers who are making decisions between addressing a medical emergency, taking a child to the dock in the box at the <laughs> corner yeah. um, and paying in cash to see a doc because the child is has congestion in their chest and can't breathe. And then that means they have no money that night to support access to food. So that same child goes to bed hungry. And you talk to mothers who are balancing between paying car fare to get to jobs that pay the minimum wage and having enough to provide for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for their children. And depending upon the social safety net systems, whether that's food banks, food pantries, uh, or other community aid to try and make those ends meet on a regular basis. And then the decisions that they make about food, what food to purchase, is the food that fills stomachs. It's the high calorie, it's high salt, it's high sugar. And so we're seeing an explosion of overweight children. I've taught, I was talking to a, a pediatrician uh, just last week who was telling me about the increased number of cases of adolescent high blood pressure. Teenage high blood pressure that she's seeing because of um, the children being overweight. And we know that we now have more people in the world who are suffering from chronic uh, non-communicable diseases as a result of being overweight and obese than we have people who are suffering from undernourishment and hunger. And the impact that the malnutrition, whether overweight uh, or undernourishment, has on both the individual, the family, the society, and GDP are uh, both quite significant and creating uh, the health challenges that are having GDP impacts in here in the United States directly related to our health care costs. And so the, these are the kinds of issues that we're not talking about right now. We as a, as a society here at home, we are talking about eating better, but what we are what we see, is this is the, those who are eating better are the middle class and the affluent. Yeah, it, it costs a great deal to eat healthy. I am often noticing when you're in an upscale community uh, where the, there's all sorts of very healthy food, you know, the prices are far higher uh, than they are in a, a typical fast food restaurant where you've got a dollar menu you, where people are watching their dollars. But what I hear also is that, again, the link between different systems, not having enough money 
then suddenly means even if at very small amounts, then suddenly you get a cascade effect, which is the opposite of resilience, right? And that you don't have the extra, whatever it is, 10 or $20 to provide a good dinner that night. It, you know, then if your child goes to bed hungry, their immune system is compromised. I mean, there's so many intersecting factors where a resilient system would again have layers of, of contingency. Exactly. And we too often look to the charity community to provide that social safety net that will deliver the resilience or provide the resilience to a community. But in too many places, it's unavailable or what is available is inadequate to meet the needs of all of those in need in a particular community. I have to throw you a curveball question at this point, or maybe just a a little unusual. You often, when you talk about food insecurity around the world or in the United States, you talk about mothers and mothers trying to feed their children. In your experience, would you say women are more resilient than men? What a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Well... I mean, it's often I'm just struck, you know, the 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 mothers, uh, you know, who who walk vast distances, uh, you know, to try to, to to care for their kids who are often left home, uh, you know, when when the men go out. It, it, the the women are are even in 2019, the women are the ones who are left at home with the children. The women are the ones who are yep. making the yep. decisions in in most households around the world about what the family eats tonight, and the women Women are often making the sacrifice of not eating to ensure that the husband and the children have access to food. We see it um, here at home. We see it in in communities around the world. But I am always what what made me hesitate was not the truth of your statement that women are the nurturers. That is the the role that that women performed historically and today in in, in cultures both similar and different. But mm. what I've also had the opportunity to sit with men who leave their families to find income, yeah. to find yep. to find work to ensure that that mother has the ability to feed those children, that he can send find money back home to support his family. And and uh, am struck by the emotional distress many of these men experience when they leave their families. I think there's a notion in our world that men are, are less concerned about the food security of their children, the the education of their children. And I have found that to be untrue. The women embrace the task of nurturing, but the men also embrace the responsibility of providing support where they can. But too often, they cannot. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I quite 
agree. Uh, I do. Th- I think you know, women are often resilient in a different way. They they have less opportunity for action. But I I completely agree with you that when you when you look at the risks uh, that so many of these men take to be able to feed their family, and of course not to be able to feed your family, is one of the the very worst things you can imagine a, a, mm-hmm. as a parent. So I, let's come back to your your personal resilience uh, again. Doing this work, it, it's hard. Uh, you've you've seen uh, situations that where you describe where there really are bright spots and pe- people learn how to feed themselves and communities become more resilient. But it, at one point you described when you were the head of the World Food Program, you were in a refugee camp in Ethiopia and there were women refugees coming across the border from South Sudan. And there was a mother who'd walked for a week uh, with three children to escape the war and to, to find food. And when you met her, uh, she was outside a medical tent, and her youngest child uh, was being seen by the doctors, a child only six months old. And the doctors, then she went in and told her, the doctors told her that the child had died. And you describe the sound of, of her cry, the, the cry of any parent, mother or father, who's suffered one of the worst things any of us can suffer, which is the loss of a child. How do you maintain your resilience in the face of that? I think many of us who want to do this kind of work are, are perhaps uh, afraid we can't withstand that kind of, of suffering uh, and, and being face-to-face with some of the worst things in, that human experience has to offer. Yes, the, the situation you describe is one that will stay in my memory for the balance of my days. Uh, it was not a cry. It was a wail. It was just yeah. the, a wail of pain. And at that moment, my team looks to me for looked for me for leadership. Mm. And if I could not stand with that mother and with my team, then how could I expect them remain? In this, in this refugee camp after I drove away and continue to serve with the strength that's required to serve um, a population suffering through crisis. And so I am a crier. I, my family will tell you I cry on Christmas commercials, but I'm also disciplined. And I know when tears are appropriate and when they're not. And when I must, I must find inside of myself the strength that is necessary to lead. And that means keeping my emotions in check until it's appropriate. But that also means in order to stay mentally healthy, that I do find those appropriate opportunities to let go, to release. It's always been important to me to have a a group of close friends who love me for me and not for my title and who I I can cry with and, and laugh with and drink a beer with and then fight another day. There again, uh, the, the, the personal resilience like community resilience of that, what I think of as a web of relationships that, that supports us, family, friends, constructed family. 
so we have time for one last question, and I, I wanted to end actually by asking you about uh, relationships with your team because when you started at the World Food Program, you told your staff uh, never to take a picture of you holding a baby with flies in their eyes or with an emaciated uh, belly. And you said, you know, the world has seen enough of those babies to know that we can fail. I want the world to know we can succeed. So talk about the value of optimism, of images, of hope, and of resilience, uh, and how that has informed your work. When you're working with 14,000 people to feed 80 million people a year, the ability to keep, to Mm. get up every morning and do it again, when there's not enough money, there's not enough people, there's not enough resources, requires that you continue to build a narrative of hope. You uh, A narrative of hope that supports the donor's desire to continue to provide the financial support that is necessary because they believe you will get it done. The hope of a team that's sleeping on the floor in places where they are meeting the needs of those who are only overcoming hunger because of their work and the hope of those that we serve, that they can depend upon us. If there was if there if there was nothing else that is required of a leader in those situations, it is the capacity to deliver that level of hope to all of those different stakeholders, to keep performing the work that is necessary to ensure that we we provide the assistance that's required for to continue to attempt to work so that no child goes hungry. Well, Earthburn Cousin, I think it must be apparent to anyone listening just what a fine leader you are, uh, and we are lucky uh, that you've held the roles you've held in, in really some of the greatest crises and the toughest problems that we face. So I thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Resilience, powered by New America and in partnership with our friends at Slate. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our online magazine at resilience.newamerica.org to access my other interviews.